I'm Damien Barr and you're listening to Damien Barr's Literary Salon where I get to meet the world's finest writers, find out what they're writing and find out a wee bit more about who they really are. In this episode, recorded at London Savoy Hotel, I'm talking to Pulitzer Prize winning novelist, rarely cited in the UK, Richard Rousseau, about secrets, lies and men's underwear choices in small town America. Now, thanks to Donald Trump, small-town America has had a bad reputation of late, but Richard Rousseau has been chronicling it for the past half a century, and he makes it sound a whole lot more human and appealing than the Trump. Welcome. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you very much for being here. Um, I read Empire Falls when I was... 21, um, and which is just a few weeks ago, yeah. um, and um, and the the, no, the novel stayed with me through my entire life. It's the novel that I read, and I thought, here is here's the truth of a kind of America. It spoke to me in such a, a profound way, um, in its ordinariness um, and in its um, extraordinary ordinariness. So, um, when I found out that you were coming here, I know that we've been planning this evening for nearly a year, I think, um, in order to get you here. So, thank you for being here. Um, it would be great if you could read um, from sure. from the sequel to Nobody's Soul. So, Nobody's Soul was published in 1993, um, I think, something like that. Uh, 92, I believe. Yeah. And it's set in 1983, 1984, 1985 yeah. in um, small town America. North Bath is the name of the town in up upstate New York. Um, and it's it set over a few days. And this is the sequel, which is also set over a few days, but a few warm days as opposed to winter time. I think that's, yeah, this is the, the first book is, is really a winter's tale. And uh, when I started writing this one, that was, that was my thought, um, that I would do it um, over a long weekend uh, to make it feel like a sequel. Um, and But definitely this time uh, in the heat, uh, uh, which is where it begins. Uh, I'll just read a sh really short passage here um, uh, that introduces uh, us to, or will introduce you uh, to um, the main character, Douglas Raymer, who is uh, the chief of police of North Bath. Um, he has kind of snuck in the back way to his office where there is a sofa uh, and he's escaping the sweltering heat and he takes off his, his, um, his uniform and trousers and he has just been embarrassed um, when Sharice, um, his kind of personal assistant at the police department, discovers him there, pantless. Um, subtitles for British people. Trouserless. Trouserless, yes. <laughs> Different novel. Yeah. <laughs> Have to aim the book so I can actually <laughs> see the page here. Okay. Raymer, groggy, was sitting in the middle of the office sofa with his hands tented over his, over his boxers. He'd worn briefs his whole life until he disrobed in front of Becca, his wife, for the first time, and she had reacted to them with startled revulsion. <laughs> well, she said, that's going to have to change. <laughs> Apparently, 
It was an ironclad policy. She dated only men who wore boxers. His sleeveless undershirts would have to go as well. He really didn't mind, being swi uh, mind switching to boxers, though they did take some getting used to, given how they bunched up and gapped at the fly, which is why he had tented his hands over them now. What did it mean that he hadn't gone back to briefs now that Becca was gone? The sad truth was that during their short tenure together, he'd learned to defer to Becca in most matters. She had switched him from Colgate to Crest, Listerine to Scope, Arid to Right Guard. <laughs> Free now to return to his own preferences, he discovered that they had come to match. <clears throat> Maybe that was what marriage meant, except that in theirs, it had been a one-way street. He couldn't think of a single behavior of Becca's that he had altered in the slightest. But perhaps that was because there was so little he had wanted to change, whereas she had evidently viewed him as a fixer-upper from the start. <laughs> Structurally sound, the sort of property that you wouldn't mind owning after you had completed all the necessary renovations. <laughs> First, though, you would have to gut it, which was pretty much how Raymer had felt at the end, as if the overhaul of his person was, was coming in over budget and the person footing the bill was having serious second thoughts. <laughs> to judge by her impression, the woman standing over him in her off-duty attire, tight jeans and a halter top, and all very provocative, apparently she agreed. It was as if by studying him, she could envision all the improvements that Becca had tried to make and was calculating how much work remained to be done, <laughs> what it would cost to finish the job so poorly begun, or whether it would make better sense to just start over and gut him again. <laughs> how was it possible that two women with so little in common had come to, to, to the same unflattering assessment. <laughs> oh, poor Rima. I do, yeah. I do feel for him um, often throughout this book. So he's, his wife, um, Becca, he, yeah. it's not, they haven't separated, she's dead. Yes, yes. Um, and in interesting circumstances. She, is, she has um, 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 slipped, she has slipped on a rug at the top of the stairs, um, a rug that, has, that Raymer has been promising for months to get a, something to, 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 to put beneath it uh, to keep it from slipping, and, and he's not done that. So... Um, um, if there's, if any, if anybody, you know, if your, if your wife is nagging you about something, um, this is, this is just a word of, just, just a word of warning. <laughs> so best, best do it. So the, she's, Becca's killed by a rug, um, and he finds her at the bottom of the, the, the stairs, um, and it, it's a, a, a tragedy, a kind of macabre tragedy in itself, but there's another tragedy, which is that he discovers she was about to leave him. Uh, yes, he has discovered, he has discovered um, 
in, 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 in her car, um, or she, he will discover later uh, in, 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 in her car um, the final proof of that. At the time he finds her at the bottom of the stairs and she lands in a, in a particularly horrible way. She's, she's, she's slipped at the rug at the top of the stairs, but she's come down the stairs and she's hit several on the way down and she lands precariously with her forehead on the, on the, on the bottom step with her, with her rump kind of up in the air precariously balanced, and, and one of the first cops who gets there looks at her and, said, and concludes that she must have come down the stairs like a slinky uh, in, order, in, order to have, in order to have arrived there. But, but there, right within reach, if she could reach, uh, were the suitcases that she has, she has packed. Yeah. Uh, and so it is, it is Raymer who discovers her, um, and... Um, feels immediate guilt because of the of course there's the the rug the rug has followed her down the stairs of course as it would um but before he can even come to terms with the possibility of grief there of course are the suitcases and um they tell him what he needs to know yeah um, and so when we meet Raymer, I mean, because Raymer, like many of the characters in, in this novel, is also in the in in the in the, the preceding novel, the first novel. Yeah. Um, and then he's a kind of smart ass. Um, you know, he he takes out his gun and he holds it up to one of the other characters, and he ac accidentally or claims he accidentally fires it. He's kind of a hothead. And in this book, he's a kind of a loser. I mean, mm -hmm. he's 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 living on his own in a place that you call the Moribund Arms. Yeah. Tell, tell us about that place. Yeah, Raymer, since his wife's death, Raymer has begun to circle the drain. Um, and uh, he is, he's, he's a man, he's a man who has always, he's the sort of guy that, that um, believes whatever you tell him. If you call him a fool, he becomes a fool. If, if you, his, his mother has suspected that, um, that when he, when he grows up, he will probably be a thief like her father. And this is one of the first bits of, of information he gets about his own destiny from his own mother that he probably will not end well. And, and so he spent his, his youth and, and his young life um, believing that he is a fool because everyone has told him so. And, and it seems like a workable thesis to him uh, on the... Uh, and, and so, um, and, and so there's this brief shining moment where this incredibly attractive woman, um, Becca falls for him and he can't, he cannot begin to fathom why. And then suddenly, you know, he's, he's, he's working on that mystery when, and it doesn't take long for her to not be in love with him anymore. Um, and then, and then finally this, and, 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 and after, after her death, um, he begins to revert uh, into his into his old self, and um, and they own two cars, so he sells the good one, um, mm. so that he has to drive the old beater around, um, and they have a very nice condo, but he can't live in it anymore for fear of you know seeing her at the bottom of the stair. So he sells the condo, and he worked, and he and he actually moves into this place, the Morrison Arms, which everybody in town calls the Moribund Arms. Um, simply because it is the worst place in town, and he, it's the place that he feels that that he belongs, and it's it's an, it's it's mostly um, deadbeats and petty criminals that 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 live there, and he discovers that um, even the fact that the chief of police 
uh, now lives there doesn't doesn't slow their criminal activity <laughs> really at all. <laughs> yes, there's an interesting episode with a drug dealer and a cobra, and I'm not joking. Yeah. <laughs> um, so um, so he's living in the Moribund Arms, and then we've got Sully, who yeah. is who's Donald Sullivan, who's the who's the great antihero who we meet in part one, who is who is a big part of 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 the sequel, but he's not the central character. I mean, it's kind of Raymer's story, but. Tell us about Sully, who he was then and where he is now. How has Sully's life changed um, from, one, from one decade to the other? Well, Sully, in, in the first book, um, um, is a man waiting for his luck to turn. Yeah. And, 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 and he is a man who really believes in luck. Um, and he has, he has some, 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 some reason to. Actually, the first part of his life, he's been incredibly lucky. Um, he was part of the D-Day invasion and made it... Uh, all the way from from um, uh, from the beach to through the hedgerows and through the Hurtgen Forest and all the, and all the way to uh, all the way to Berlin. Um, but um, coming back home, his luck has turned with a vengeance. Um, and as that novel opens, he has um, left his family and is doing the kind of horrible manual labor that usually involves him standing hip deep in in something truly truly revolting. Um, and and that's that's been his life, that's been his life as an adult. And the, the central metaphor in that earlier book is that he has been betting this same what his friends call the same bonehead trifecta. He's got these numbers that he believes if he bets them long enough, are going to play, and it's going to get him off that knife edge of of of, of um, uh, precarious economy, uh, and, and, um, and, and it finally, at the end of the book, it, it finally does run, but of course it doesn't run, the payoff isn't nearly enough. So you, 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 end, him, you, you end that first novel with a sense that Sully is, in, in a way, right where you left him. He's making the best of a bad mm. situation, and, mm. and um, he's paid off some of his debts, but he's right back on that knife edge again, and blaming luck as he, is, as he has done throughout the book. Yeah. Be careful what you wish for. Um, by the time Everybody's Fool begins, he is, his luck has turned. That same trifecta has run three more times, and he's done something unthinkable. He has opened a bank account. This is a man who, at age 60, has probably never even had a bank account. Mm. Most of the work he does is under the table. He's paid in cash. Anything that he couldn't pay for in cash, he didn't buy. And suddenly now at age 70, um, he has money in the bank. His landlady, from whom he has been renting a single, a, a small apartment above, has given her his house. And the father whom he has loathed and who died in the first novel, uh, who had, he has loathed his entire life, uh, to the point where he's just in, and he's just watched his father's house crumble and fall down. Well, it turns out that the house isn't worth anything, but the land is. It's a the town needs it to build a bike path that goes right through right through that that uh, that backyard. And so Sully finds himself to be at the beginning of the of this novel something of a man of means, but it has thrown off his entire world. And he has begun to suspect, as the novel opens, that the cost of his being, of, of his luck turning, 
is everybody, everybody he loves now, ev- their luck is turning also, and for the worse. Yeah, so I mean, the, the second novel opens with a funeral, um, mm-hmm. and um, we, you mentioned um, his landlady. Let's, let's talk about her for a moment. Yeah. She's an absolutely incredible character, um, Miss or Missies, depending on how yeah. you think of her, Beryl Peoples. Yes. Um, and she's, she's, she's the landlady now. She's a central character in the first novel, and in the second novel, she's, she's dead, but she suffuses the second novel, doesn't she? She's, she's the guiding spirit for many of the characters uh, and and this is this is a novel about this is a novel about hauntings um, and it begins in a cemetery um, and we learn in on the first page that um, the dead are on the move in this town right now because um, um, there's been a blight um, in the cemetery and all the tree, the tree roots have died and shrunk and so and it's in the cemetery is on a hill and every time it rains, it tunnels beneath the ground. And so when you go to visit Aunt Rose on Monday, <laughs> she may or may not be down there. She may be farther down the hill than, 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 than where you last visited her. And that too seemed, um, seemed telling for me because everybody, pretty much everybody in this novel is haunted in, in one way or another. Miss um, Burl is kind of the moral center of both books, and she's been dead for ten years mm. at the beginning of the second uh, at the beginning of the second novel. But both Sully and Chief of Police Raymer are still trying to answer questions that she has asked them when they were in eighth grade. Yeah, she's an, an, a, a school teacher. She's yes. and she's four foot ten, um, yeah. and um, her husband has died. Her son is very dull, um, a bank yeah. manager, and she's quite yeah. disappointed in him. And she much prefers Sully, her tenant. And it's interesting that Raymer in this book is constantly asking himself about Mrs. Um, Mrs. People's rhetorical triangle. This idea. Yeah, we're of, back to rhetoric. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're back, back to rhetoric. To rhetoric this, Sam. this idea of, um, <laughs> of, 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 of subject and audience, and who who. Am I? Who is Raymond? Mm-hmm. He's, he's asking himself this question all the way through the novel. I'm not sure he ever answers it. Well, as, as in so many Richard Russo novels, there are there are there are. I love there, talking there, about yourself. <laughs> <as a> person. <laughs> so hard. There, there is there are, there are these cautious cautious moments. The the most cautious moments of optimism. Um, in contemporary literature can be found in Richard Russo novels, I think. Um, in, in, in a novel of mine called Bridge of Size, uh, it begins with a character um, saying um, uh, in the first person, my wife and I are going to Venice. And 750 pages later, the same character says, my wife and I are going to Venice. The difference is that this time they're going. Mm. And the first time it was a lie, the second time it's the truth. Mm. And in this novel, in Everybody's Fool, um, Miss Burl is always writing in, in Chief of Police Raymer's uh, margins, right under his name, where he signed his name, at the, you know, typed his name at the top of the page, Douglas Raymer. And um, she writes under that, who is this Douglas Raymer, on every composition. Because what she's trying to tell him is that there's never anything of him in what he writes about. Mm. You know, he's got this... If, and she asks him about the subject, too. Why are you writing about this? And he says, well, because you assigned it, mm-hmm. right? And, and who, who do you imagine would be interested in this, right? Well, you. You're the one who assigned it. But most pressing, most pressing is the question that she wants him to answer is who he is. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, um, he has to be struck by lightning. He has, his, his, his personality 
has to actually physically be divided by a bolt of electricity. It's not a metaphor. Which, which less, which, which, which um, it's only by dividing and letting out some part of his personality mm. that, he, that he didn't dream that he had, that he had kind of submerged. That 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 once once this Dougie, <laughs> who is who is loosed by the lightning, once Dougie begins to um, um, reveal himself, um, Raymer begins to become a better cop, but but not a better man. Mm. But he's 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 um, by the end of the novel, he has begun uh, uh, to have a sense of why a woman like Becca might have been attracted to him to begin mm. with, mm. and why the woman standing over him when he's got his hands tented over his boxers um, uh, might be attracted to him as well. So he has made baby steps. He's made baby steps. And, and Sully, you leave us on a kind of a, a cliffhanger about what may or may not happen with him and his on-on-off relationship that he has with Ruth. So, I mean, there's some resolution, death mainly, mm-hmm. um, and um, yeah. <laughs> imprisonment, um, yeah. and, um, and, 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 and other, other strands are left hanging. You talked about Raymer and the question of who he is and, and what he brings of himself um, to his compositions, and it was so interesting reading the novels and then reading your memoir and seeing just how much of Richard Russo um, is 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 in is in your novels. I mean, North Bath, Empire Falls, Mohawk. These places are sort of avatars, aren't they, of of Gloversville, where you grew up? They certainly are. They certainly are. Um, you know, there's you know Mohawk, and and uh, it was was the first one, and and Empire Falls. Despite the fact that I tell people it's set in Maine, it's another upstate New York town, really. Um, North Bath, Thomaston, and, and they're, they're all avatars. And the reason that I didn't come back to the same town and just call it the same town um, was that for each book I needed a slightly different geography. And once you tell very specific mm. lies about a place, then you have to be kind of, you have to be kind of um, true to those particular lies. And I can't be true to anything for very long. <laughs> so I, with, each, with each new book, I had to, I had to create... A, a new place that that will remind people of the old place, but but that allow me to travel a slightly a slightly different route. And sometimes it's very, it just can be a small thing. I wanted Empire Falls to be in Maine and not in upstate New York because um, the, the main character's father is a is a house painter, and I wanted him in the in the um, uh, in the summer to go to the coast and paint rich people's windows shut. And there was, and in, and in upstate New York, there was just no, there were no rich people anywhere near uh, what I had, what I had been writing about. So I just needed him nearer the coast, and so. But yeah, and then, and, and then of course it was interesting because my one, the first time that I called Gloversville Gloversville, in this memoir, mm. it was interesting because um, in all of these novels I had, I was always a favored son, and I, I felt that I, I certainly wasn't writing. Chamber of Commerce sort of portrait of a town, yeah. but by calling it by a different name, people were um, remarkably generous with me um, and treated me as a as kind of a favored son. And I was welcomed when I when I came back until I wrote my memoir where I called Gloversville Gloversville, and 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 discovered that um, that that brought out an animus that, I, that, that surprised and scared me a little. I, I read a piece of yours, actually, Damien, okay. uh, in The Guardian, where you described going back 
to your hometown. Oh, yeah. Interestingly, to a library, because we, the, I st I've started going back to my hometown now to do some fundraising work for the local library, a Carnegie library oh, right. also, yep. by the way. Yep, Scottish, brilliant. And, and um, it's interesting that, that throughout much of my life, when I was writing those early novels, I was kind of afraid to go home, afraid that people were going to have that kind of bitter reaction about you know telling what life was like there as if they thought maybe I was making fun of them or mm. something like that. I didn't feel like I was. Mm. But um, um, in, those, in, those, in those early books, people seemed, to, people seemed to think that I was paying attention to their lives, which is what they, which is, and, and that was fine. Mm. As soon as I didn't name them and their town, but when I named them, ooh, ooh, suddenly it was like, I was like Steinbeck going back to Monterey. And have you been back since, since you did that? I have. I have, and, and actually, um, I've started going back more frequently because I've discovered, specifically with the work that I've been doing for the library, mm. um, I've, I've, I've discovered that, that um, even after writing that memoir, but then another novel has come out where I'm back to my old, yeah. back to my, back up to my old tricks, which they kind of appreciated. Now, um, by going back and having a, 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 bit, of a, a bit of a presence, um, and 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 um, um, maybe trying to give back a little bit um, and um, and act like a favorite son. Mm. Um, a lot of those wounds now have kind of um, 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 scabbed over. It's, it's really interesting, I and I haven't been picking the scab <laughs> with any with it with any further memoirish sorts of things. But in the in the memoir, it's very interesting because you are fearful to the point of. It's just almost impossible for you to imagine going back to Gloversville because you and your mother, particularly your mother, spent so much time talking about how bad it was, how terrible it was, how it was a trap, you had to escape it. And when you went to university in Arizona, when you mm -hmm. drove across the country in a, a car <laughs> that you called the Grey Death quite yeah. wisely. I mean, yeah, I yeah, can't yeah. imagine anybody getting in the car. You drove across the country in that car with your mother. Yeah. She went to university with you because she was so desperate to escape. It was, I mean, really, really, um, it, was, it, was, it was just the damnedest thing. Um, she, um, along about junior year, um, she began to ask me what I, what I wanted to do and where I might want, what I might want to study and where. And um, I hadn't given any thought to going much farther than State University of New York. I'd gotten a full scholarship there, mm. and, and it seemed like a wise thing to do. It wouldn't cost an awful lot. And I thought to myself, you know, I, we were living in, I, I adored my grandparents, and we, we, we lived in a house on the second floor. My grandparents lived below. I loved my grandparents. I'd, and I loved the town, although I knew I, wasn't, I, knew I wasn't supposed to. Mm. Um, and I loved my neighborhood and all of that, but so I thought, well, you know, if I go to the State University of New York, maybe at Albany, I could even come home for the weekends and, and help out. Well, it, and I, so, and then my mother started saying, well, wouldn't it be nice to really get away somewhere, <laughs> somewhere, somewhere far away? And I was, I was thinking, what, was, what, would I, what, what, what might I do? And she said, Have you, did you ever consider archeology? span um, and I said, no, Mom, no, uh, I, I hadn't actually. And then she started spinning these kind of Indiana Jones-like <laughs> like, like tales. And, and she said, I wonder, I wonder where you would go to study something like archaeology. And, 
and uh, and I didn't I didn't I, I should have taken the bait, but I didn't. And 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 she came back and she said, well, it turns out that many of the most important schools are, are places like you, you can do digs, like in the desert and in in places like New Mexico and possibly. Arizona, and then the following week, Arizona Highways magazines started turning up um, on, on, the, on the coffee table. Um, and, and things progressed in this fashion over the last year um, that, that of, my, uh, uh, of high school. And um, because we didn't have a car in the family, I was the last among my friends to learn, to learn how to drive. Um, something, it was sort of like those of you who have read Empire Falls, you remember Miles, that driving, mm. the, when Miles learns to drive in Empire Falls, that was me. Um, but, but so I was the last to learn how to drive, and we only had like, after I got my driver's license, I only had like three months um, of, of being able to drive, but I desperately wanted a car. There were girls I wanted to ask out that I couldn't ask out without a car. You know, in high school, you just past a certain point, they won't go out with you, and many of them wouldn't have anyway. But I thought if I just had, if I just had a car, and so it's it's at one point I said to my mother, "Geez, you know, it would be, why can't I just buy a beater? I've been saving up my money from various jobs. Couldn't we just buy like a $500 beater?" And she said, "Oh, that would be fine." Really? Um, but so so she let me she let me buy she let me buy the car, um, and we bought this underpowered car that we called that I called the Gray Death, um, and I had it for four months. Uh, and then my mother said to me, um, "You know what? I've decided um, to come to Arizona too. We will we will load all just, of our just, stuff." Just a bit at the point where your mother says she's coming to university with you. Before yeah. we get to the furniture, what were you thinking at that point? What were you feeling? Because you were so close, because your father wasn't there. He, yeah. He was in the town. Yeah. Um, they were separated. I'm not sure if they were yet divorced at that point. So, you know, it was you and her against the world. So yeah. did it feel like her coming to university with you was a, a continuation? Did, did that feel natural? Did you, did you think, yes, yeah, well, of course she's going to come? Or did you think, no? But, you know, what, what were you thinking? Well... Was was I thinking? Yes. Um, um, well, what I, what was interesting? What, feeling? what was interesting about my thinking was that there were two things um, happening on parallel tracks, and it's the story of my entire boyhood, which was that everything about our lives—that is, my mother's life and my life—everything about our lives was was there were there were no other people like us. Mm. First of all, because my parents were separated small upstate uh, New York town, very little divorce. At, and this is the late 50s, remember? Mm. Leave it to Beaver uh, country. So um, there, there was, there was I, could, I could look around all of Gloversville and not found anyone else like me mm. or my mother mm. or the circumstance in we were living because we were basically living above my grandparents because we could afford the rent there. We mm. couldn't afford market rent. So... If I looked at our situation, on the one hand, I couldn't find anything else like it. Hmm. But on the other hand, when you're a kid, you kind of look at whatever is happening to you as kind of natural, because it's what you live with every day. Hmm. And so even at 17, on the one hand, I'm thinking to myself, really? You want to, do you have a job? And she told me she did. Yes. She didn't, but she told me she did. 
And she said, you're going, you're going to Phoenix. Well, I'll just go to, I'll just, you're, you're going to Tucson at the university. I'll just go to Phoenix. And I thought, well, I can't really tell her no. Mm-hmm. You know, she's, and, and, and my grandparents were beside themselves because traveling 3,000 miles across the United States, driving a car everybody called the Gray Death <laughs> with a driver who has only had his license for three months, um, with a passenger who couldn't spell me because she didn't have a driver's license. Yeah. This is insanity. But it didn't seem like insanity to me. It just seemed like a continuation of the way everything had been in our lives since I could remember. And so you do it. You know, you rent the U-Haul, you attach it to the car, you load up all of your furniture, um, and without, and we're told, we know how much money it's going to take to get there, and somehow, miraculously, we made it. You know, we, 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 we got there. We got there. Um, there, were other re- there were other revelations. Um, um, this is just to give you an idea of just how slow-witted I was, um, that when we got there, um, we had like 10 days, two weeks, something like that, because we, we, we made the journey in, in August, and I had to be at the university um, like the last week in August. Um, and so here we, we, we have finally arrived, but that means now that we have two weeks for my mother to find a job because she, probably, she finally did confess that that was a lie, that there was no job. So she had to find a job, and I had to teach her to drive. And oh, by the way, the car was hers. <laughs> so, um, and, somehow that, and somehow that got done too. Mm. But here's the thing, Damien. Here's the, here's, here's the remarkable thing about that. The very, very best things in my life right now sitting before you are the result of that stupidity. I met my wife. I met my wife there without whom I would have not have my two beloved daughters and now granddaughters and now grandchildren. Um, I became a man there. I became a writer there. Um, and part of the reason that I write about destiny so much, both in terms of fiction and nonfiction, is that, I, is that even now I have this profound sense that there is another version of me that didn't do that because doing that was so damned crazy. Mm. Only a complete imbecile would, 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 would have done what I and my mother did. And somehow, somehow, we not only made it, um, every major blessing of my life has followed. I owe my, I owe my, my life, the blessings of my life, uh, all of my great fortune to stupidity. And really, show of hands, how many, how many people out yeah, there can... I, can, can, can <laughs> all right, there are others. You've made me feel very good. <laughs> um, you, you, you and your mother get out of Gloversville um, and 
she, um, she leaves it. It's the most terrible place. She feels oppressed by her family. Everybody can just drop in. She has no privacy. She, yeah. she can't, there are no interesting men there because she's single. She's very attractive. She's vivacious. She can't get anybody. And then she gets out of Gloversville. And then as soon as she leaves Gloversville, something strange happens and Gloversville starts to become this attractive place, a place of charm, a place where there are families and it's kind of Norman Rockwell sort people, of territory. People love you. There. People, yeah, people yeah, love you yeah, there. Yeah. And, and it's safe. And this is the pattern which... Um, uh, repeats for the rest of your mother's life. She moves house innumerable times. At one mm -hmm. point, the movers are moving her furniture and they see the stickers underneath the furniture and the guy goes, this woman moves house a lot. Yeah. You know, I mean, they were talking you know, months at a time in a, in a different place and she indeed follows you um, and you choose to have her with you. Um, through, through the rest of your life. So for her, there are these two Gloversvilles, mm -hmm. and I'm never sure if she quite reconciles them. And I, and I wonder if finally, having published the memoir and returning to, to North Bath in your second novel if it, uh, there, if you have reconciled the, the, the two Gloversvilles, or indeed the two Richard Russo's. Um, probably not completely, uh, and I hope I never do, because I think the fact that it's, that it's so difficult for me to reconcile those mm. is probably the conflict that drives so much of my fiction. I think if I, if I, think if I were ever to, to solve that conflict in a, in a way that, that I thought to myself, well, there, I'm done with that. I know what that was all about mm. after 30 years and six or seven novels. Um, I have a strong suspicion that I would just be flat out done. Mm. And, and, and the fact that there is um, something about this place and these people um, that keeps me coming back, um, I mean, we come back not because we know, but because we don't. Mm. We come back for the mystery, don't we? It's the, it's the mystery that, that keeps us um, um, re re returning. And um, so um, I, and I've got a book of short stories coming out next year that are, no, that are none of which are set uh, in a mill town. And I have on occasion written books that are not set mm. in mill towns. They're very different though, because when I write about my mill towns, um, I, am, I am bringing an entire world with me. Yes. Um, and, um, and my sense is that it has only just begun to reveal itself to me. Now, I could be wrong about really? that, but it feels to me like the mystery of that place and of those people and of myself, not as so much as a man, but also as a writer, um, I, I still feel the mystery of all of those things. And, Maybe that's why I, I sympathize so much with um, Douglas Raymer, who's still, who's still, you know, asking, um, asking, asking that question: Who, who is Douglas Raymer? Um, um, and I, and I left him where I wanted to leave him in this book, with a few clues. Um, and that's where, that's, you know, I, I'm 67. I, I don't know how many more years I'm going to be investig investigating these mysteries. But I'm really kind of glad that that. Um, uh, when I ask myself who I am as a man, uh, but also as a writer, um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm glad that, that, that the mystery is deepening rather than becoming uh, more shallow. So, um, 
It's a small town, and we return there in, you know, 94, 95 in, 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 in the second novel, I think. Um, and um, it's long before Trump, but I couldn't mm -hmm. help thinking of him. Um, th th this is the kind of town that we're told is solid Trump territory. It's, the, it's a post-industrial, out-of-town, it's not metropolitan. There aren't very many people um, who are anything but white and working class and straight. I mean, mm -hmm. there, are some, there are a couple of black characters in this novel. There are some gay people. Mm -hmm. in the next town mm -hmm. um, right. and um, where they also sell wine by the flight yeah. <laughs> um, which is thrilling um, yeah. and um, you know so we so you know but, but, but Trump kind of hangs over and I, and I wondered what you thought your characters might make of him and how they would vote I have been asked that as you might imagine yes, I, I have been imagine. asked that a lot and the first time actually was um, the first time I got asked that question um, was the day after the election where I was asked to come on uh, to explain both, um, to explain myself and, and, and Blue Collar America and the election um, to America on, 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 nas on national public radio, no pressure. Um, um, and I was asked that question and it has stuck with me because I botched it. Hmm. I botched the answers almost, almost completely. And the question I, that, that I was asked was very simple and very, very straightforward, almost no way to, in, almost no way to in, misinterpret it. And so I found that narrow, that, that window was only open about <laughs> like that, but I squeezed, I squeezed through. Um, the question was, how would your characters have, um, how would your characters in, in your novels have voted? Mm. And, um, and I immediately translated that into a different question, um, which was, how were people in upstate New York mill towns like the one that I had been writing about for all of those years, how did I think they had voted? And um, I said that, well, I, I, I mean, obviously the demographics were pretty clear that, that most of them had voted uh, in the general election for Trump, although, you know, if you went back a few months before the Democratic um, nomination was settled, a lot of those people were Bernie Sanders voters mm -hmm. because it was just a question. They were, they, were, um, they were the same scared people whose jobs um, uh, had been outsourced um, and who didn't feel you know, like they had a real place in America anymore. It was just a question of who you blamed, and Trump voters were, were blaming immigrants and Bernie voters were blaming bankers. But once Bernie was no longer part of the, of, of the political equation, mm. um, then um, a lot of those voters, there was a visceral hatred of Hillary Clinton that I've never completely understood, but it was, but it, but it was visceral. Visceral enough to, to cause people who blamed bankers to vote for a guy uh, who was blaming immigrants. So it was, it was powerful. Whatever it was, it was powerful. Sexism? Just a wild guess. Just, a, just, just to put a, that out there. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've already tried the black guy. Yeah, and yeah. and 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 that yeah. and and and, and as, good, as they that said, how's that hope and change working for you? Yeah. Uh, and so they weren't gonna they weren't gonna they weren't gonna try they weren't gonna try the woman. Um, so anyway, I, I said, alas, that I think a lot of people in the um, uh, in the in the. The, the kinds of people that I've been writing about for a long time, alas, had, had voted for Donald Trump. Whereas what I should have said was that Miss Burrell in this novel would have sussed him out in about two seconds. Mm -hmm. You know? And um, Donald Sullivan 
in both books. Here is a guy um, who, um, like my father, um, went from Normandy um, all the way to Berlin and saw the sacrifice, not so much not so much his own sacrifice as the sacrifice of all those men um, all uh, during during that during that journey mm. all the way from the beaches to Berlin, he knew what sacrifice was. Mm. And even if for other reasons he might have he might have been tempted by um, something that that Trump was saying about working class people in America, the very fact that this man this that this man had never um, seen any kind of service, not just military service, but any kind, he'd never been of any kind of service to his country, yeah. would have prevented both my father and Donald Trump from, from, from voting that way. Carl Roebuck, on the other hand, <laughs> yeah. who, is also in, who, is, who is also in both novels and is a con man yeah. himself, yes. con man posing as, a, as an entrepreneur, um, hmm. who, who, who <laughs> um, he, on the other hand, almost certainly yeah, would. would. Yeah. Yeah. And, the, and there's Spin Maddox Joe, who's, who's the lovely racist character yeah. in there as well. Yeah, I'll take yeah. questions for Richard Russo. I have one here at the front. Um, you said that, um, Hi. So no, the, the, the fates of all characters are not resolved and some of them are, are left hanging. Is that because you don't know or is that because, you know, you don't know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think that, that, that it, has, it, it has... Those decisions have less to do with, uh, with plot than with conflict. Um, it's, it's not plot that drives um, at least literary novels forward. It's, it's conflict. And when you, when you pose a conflict for the major characters in your book, once they've decided on one thing and not another, um, and the book has gotten to the point where you realize that for your main characters, life will never be the same again for them, or things will never change. Once you get to that point where whatever has been causing you to turn pages, to find out the answer to that burning question. Once those conflicts begin to get resolved, there's really, it's not a sufficient reason to keep after the other characters, um, to keep their stories going just to get into a place where you can tie that up neatly. So some of them... Um, uh, and and so, I mean, but it's, it's true that sometimes you don't know what the next step in their life is, is, is going to be. In the case of, in this, in this book, for instance, Sully's sidekick, Rub Squeers, um, um, one, of the, one of Sully's conflicts in, 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 in the second book is that he knows his, his friend Rub um, is devoted to him. He loves him. It's... it's, it's it's the love story of that part of the book, is that love's devotion to his friend Sully um, is all-consuming. And Sully knows that, if, um, that, that when he dies, and he knows he's, he's ill, that when he dies, Rub is going to be in a terrible, terrible situation. And so much of what he does in the book is to get Rub to a place 
within his marriage and with his job as the caretaker in the cemetery um, to be in a place where he will survive his friend's death. But at the end of the novel, you have to say, what's going to happen to Rub? Mm. Is he going to find, is he going to go home and be a husband to Bootsy? Will he, will he, um, will, will his job as the cemetery caretaker, um, 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 grave digger, will that be what he does for the rest of his life? Will he survive Sully's passing when that comes? Because he's going to have to dig the grave of yeah, his best friend. He's going to have to dig his best friend's grave. Yeah. And so we don't wrap that up. Uh, maybe it's another book. Uh, but we don't, we don't wrap that up because other conflicts uh, have, have begun to wrap up. They've begun to resolve. And so some you have to just leave, you just have to leave hanging. Um, you, you said there maybe it's another book. Would, would you return to North Bath? Is there a third installment? Because you don't resolve everything. Yeah, yeah. I, I would return to North Bath, but I wouldn't be able to return to North Bath um, 10 years after the fact as I did with this case, mm. in, in, in this case. Mm. Unless Sully had died in the meantime, because there is one thing that I will never do to Sully, and that is put him in assisted living or not. I mean, Sully's, <laughs> everything about Sully is about movement, about, about, about progression, going yeah, forward. progression, putting yeah. one foot in front of another, not looking behind you and worrying about whatever mistakes you have made in life. Yeah. You, go from, you go from one bar stool to another, you have further adventures. When Sully is too old to have adventures, there will be, I will never, I will never um, take readers who have loved that character as I have and put him in a situation where we pity him. That, that I will not do. Okay. It seems like a good place to thank Richard Russo. Thank you. I want to thank the Savoy. Whether or not these small towns exist in the imagination or in reality, North Bath is real in the pages of Everybody's Fool, the fantastic sequel to Nobody's Fool, both by Richard Russo. You can see Richard and all our other authors and some of you Salonistas on our Instagram, Damien Barr Literary Salon. <laughs>